Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts as we come to God's word together. Well, Father, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have moved men through the ages, Lord, to write as you gave them direction. And the Lord, we now have this record that you have given us, Lord, all of which we know points to Jesus Christ. Lord, every page of scripture tells us a little bit more about our Savior, about his love, his faithfulness, his goodness, his kindness, his grace. And Lord, as we continue our study this morning, we just pray that we see again a little more of Jesus. Lord, we don't want to just study for the purpose of adding to our knowledge. Lord, we want to change our lives. We pray that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so, Father, we just ask you to have freedom to move here this morning. Lord, speak to us through your spirit. Lord, break down any hardness or barriers that are there. And Lord, just speak to us. We pray that we would grow together in knowledge and grace. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study in the book of Revelation. We're looking at the second coming. We looked at the first part of chapter 19 last week. Uh, we just started to look at the second coming, but we're going to look at it in more detail this morning. Um, chapter 19 really starts by this declaration of praise for the destruction of Babylon, this false religious system that we've been looking at. And then it goes on to look at the marriage of the Lamb. You know, the incredible thing is that marriage itself is not there to serve our purposes. We kind of think everything revolves around us. But marriage has been given to us so that we can have an understanding and concept of Christ and the church. That's what marriage is about. It's not there just for us, because when we get to heaven, we're told there will not be marriage. There won't need to be marriage between a male and a female. That won't apply any longer, because the union that God intended will be complete, and that is that Christ will have his bride. And it's an incredible theme that we see really... Uh, revealed in the New Testament, and yet it's concealed throughout the Old Testament as well. So many wonderful examples. One of the most beautiful examples you see is the story of Abraham. And uh, with Isaac, Abraham being the father, Isaac the son. And Abraham wants to get a, a bride, find a bride for his son. And so he sends his servant off, who's unnamed, very much a type of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always exists to point towards Jesus, never to take in a sense, the glory himself, but to lift up Jesus. And so we know later in the account that Abraham's servant is this man by the name of Elimelech. And he heads off and he goes and finds this bride, who then is brought back. And they meet. Uh, it's, it's interesting because when you, you look at the account, uh, there's so many details there that you later just see as models and types of shadows of what God has accomplished. But Isaac then is united with a Gentile bride. Not part of Abraham's direct family at that point. Uh, historically, they were related, of course. But you see, this Gentile bride is sought uh, for Isaac. Uh, and again, in all of that, God just pointing forward to what all through the ages he's been working towards. So we saw that a little bit last week. This, this announcement by these wedding guests that the marriage has come, the bride has made herself ready... And of course it's speaking of believers now, the church, that has got to the point that we read about in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, that we will be without spot and blemish. Uh, and that's how the Lord would have us. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing with us now, that work of getting us ready for our wedding day. 
You know, there's no bride that suddenly gets up on the morning of a wedding day and suddenly thinks, what am I going to wear? You know, it's been planned for a long time. And that's really for us. We should be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it shouldn't just be a last minute. Jesus is coming. What are we going to do? This should be something that's always on our minds. We should be getting ready for our wedding day. Well, we looked last time as well that there's some specific reasons that are given for the second coming. One of them is to deliver Israel in the midst of her darkest hour. You know, a lot of people in the world still don't get why Israel are important in God's plan. Even a lot of people in the church don't understand it, and they reject it. They say, well, God's finished with Israel, and all the promises that were given to Israel, they now kind of fall on the church. The idea is, you may have heard this term, it's called replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. It's nonsense. It's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible makes it very, very clear that God has a plan and a purpose for Israel. Why? Well, because to protect the line coming down from Eve, God chose Abraham and said effectively to Abraham, look, I'm going to use your family as the means through which the Savior will be born into this world. Therefore, your family is going to be special. Because of the importance for the whole of humanity, I will protect your family. I will look after your family. Anybody that blesses your family will be blessed. Anybody that curses them will be cursed. The whole world benefits because Jesus was born. But Jesus came through the nation of Israel. Now as a result of that, Satan himself wanted to, and tried repeatedly, to destroy, to wipe out the nation of Israel. Not because he's bothered about Israel, but because he didn't want the Messiah to be born. And now that the Messiah has been born, Satan is just really angry and wants to destroy Israel because another part of the equation is that because of Israel's disobedience, and they certainly were disobedient, God blinded their eyes. They missed their Messiah. They didn't realize when Jesus came that he was a Messiah, that yes, a few did, and that became the birth of the church. But the leadership, the nation at large, rejected their Messiah. And so we find that God pronounced blindness upon Israel and the Bible tells us in the book of Romans, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now that one word there is enough to help you understand that God has not finished with Israel. Because God says in Romans chapter 11, that darkness in part, the blindness in part, has happened to Israel until. Just that one word, until. I'm, I'm indebted to, to Chuck Misler for a lot of the insights um, through studying scripture. And one of the things he made mention of many years ago, and it just stuck in my mind, is whenever you see an until in scripture, mark it. They're all important. There's a number of them that you'll find are all very, very key. But this one particularly, until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, Israel will be blinded. In the book of Zechariah, we read of a time when that blindness will be lifted and Israel will recognize their Messiah. They will mourn. How could you imagine what it's going to be like when they realize that throughout the centuries they've dismissed and rejected Jesus and suddenly they realize that he really is their Messiah? And they had him crucified. How do you think as a nation they'll feel? Well, we're given the details in Zechariah, but they're going to mourn in Zechariah chapter 12. But Israel will come to, to know that Jesus is their, their Messiah. But you see, Satan will want to destroy them because one of the prophecies that we find, and in fact there's a number of cases this occurs, but Hosea is one example, that in Hosea chapter 5 and into chapter 6, Israel have to cry out, to their Messiah for deliverance as one of the prerequisites of Jesus coming back. In other words, Jesus says, I'm going to wait until you call me. Isn't it interesting? Peter was sharing a little bit this morning of his testimony. How many times have people been in that situation that we get absolutely desperate 
We try everything on our own. We try our own way to bring happiness or wealth or prosperity or whatever we think we need. And you get to that point of just running out of energy, running out of your own resources, and you just fall at the foot of the cross. You know, so many of us have been there. You know, even in regard to things like praying or reading your Bible, sometimes the Lord allows you to get into such a a pickle in life to drive you to that place of going, you know what, I need Jesus. I need Jesus more than I need oxygen. And when we come to that place, things change. When we realize, we, we get to the, Oswald Chambers used to use the phrase, we need to come to the end of ourselves. And when we come to that place where we've got no more confidence in ourselves, where we've tried every possible way, that's when we start to grow spiritually. And that's where the Lord would have us. And Israel, in exactly the same situation, will be there and they'll come to the end of themselves, they'll get to the point where they will cry out for their Messiah. Now, of course, Satan wants to destroy them before they get to that point. That's one of the reasons Jesus tells us in the book of Psalms that we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And Satan will be about to destroy Israel. And we'll talk a little bit more in a while about the mechanics and how these things are going to fit together. But at that point, Jesus will come back. So this is one of the reasons that the second coming has to take place. Some scriptures there, if you want to refer to them, Jeremiah 30, 6 to 8, Hosea 5, 15, that one I mentioned. And also Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 4, we mentioned that and read that last week as well. Another reason for the second coming is to judge the ungodly nations of this world that have survived the Great Tribulation. Now we've been looking at the details of the Great Tribulation, how it's going to be a time unlike anything this world has ever known. You know, we've seen disaster movies, and of course I, I actually believe that this is all part of a big satanic plot. I genuinely mean that. I mean, I'm not a kind of conspiracy theorist as such, but I really think that over the last 30, 40 years or so, Satan has manipulated um, the world's entertainment industry to start bringing us all these films of these great cataclysmic disasters that affect life on Earth. And, you know, we're about to die and suddenly some hero steps... He's normally the American president, isn't it? You know, but somebody steps on the scene and they solve the problem and mankind wins. But you know, that's the kind of the underlying mindset behind a lot of the things that are going to go on because we're going to see that the nations of this world are actually going to group together with the intention of defeating Jesus Christ. Now, can you think of anything more ludicrous? We'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit. So because of this, Jesus is going to come back and because these nations, and as they do now, have rejected his rule, his authority. You know, it's incredible in America... They banned praying in schools. You know, they, they took the Ten Commandments out of courtrooms and so on. And you can track from that point the, the depravity in America, the way things have just got worse and worse and worse. It's no secret, it's no surprise. You, you remove God from the equation and suddenly you've lost your moral compass, you've lost any sense of accountability and suddenly it's all about us and about our rules and how we think things should be done. And, we looked last time in Matthew chapter 25, and we read that portion last time. Looking at these um, nations, how they'll be gathered together at the time of the second coming, and the Lord will judge them. But the interesting criteria is it will be judged, it will be based upon how the nations of this world have treated Israel. Because God cares about Israel, because of the reasons we've already stated this morning. And also, to Israel, it was given the word of God. The word of God was given to Israel. So we're very much in debt to the nation of Israel. And it's not just the authors, the people that wrote the books, 
But it's actually the scribes, those who faithfully transmitted. I mean, sometime we'll look and go through the detail. The way they copied the pages. It's breathtaking. The, the, the attention to detail. One slight smudge or mark out of place and they'd screw up a whole scroll that could have taken them a year to write to that point. They were so intent on making sure that what they transmitted to us was faithful and authentic. They had to have a set number of words on the page, a set number of words in each column. And, it just, and every, every letter has a numerical value in the Hebrew and also in the Greek. And so they would add the numbers up and make sure numerically the page adds up and so many other factors involved as well. The final reason, then, for the second coming is to re-establish the throne of David. It's, I'll put it there twice, haven't I? It's the throne, the throne. It's just trying to emphasise the point. That's, that's what I'm doing there. Um, you know, this is something that Jesus is intended to do right from before the monarchy was even established. God's plan was that Jesus would be king. And so the monarchy, when it was established, of course we read that Saul became the first king. That was not God's plan or intention, that was man's idea. Israel said, we want a king to rule over us, to be like the nations of the world. And God said, well, okay, try it your way, see how you get on. But then eventually David comes, and David was always the one that God had intended to be the first king over the nation. And to David, and we read in Second Samuel chapter 7, David was promised that his descendants would sit on the throne of David forever. That one of his descendants would always be king. And of course David's son Solomon builds the temple and carries on and then the kingdom divides and yet repeatedly through the book of Kings and Chronicles we find that although things get pretty uh, rough, they, they rebel, they turn away from God on numerous occasions and even within the southern kingdom out of 20 kings there's only 5 good ones in the kingdom of Judah David's family going down through the years, God makes it very clear that he wouldn't destroy them because of the promise that he made to David. God is a God who delights in keeping his promises. And so we get to the the time that Jesus is born, and then Jesus is born through Mary, of course, who's a descendant of David. But also we find that Joseph, from a genealogical point of view, was heir to the throne. Joseph should have been, or could rightly have been, king over the nation of Israel. And so, in both the lines, the line that comes down through Mary and the line that comes down through Joseph, Jesus was the one who was to sit on the throne. And so David's dynasty continues. But of course, when Jesus came, he didn't sit on the throne. And we spoke a little bit about this last week, that we read in the beginning of uh, Luke's Gospel, when Gabriel speaks to Mary, he says that the one that is going to be born through her would sit upon the throne of David. Now that didn't happen when Jesus was here, it's yet to happen. And we said last time also that in the book of Acts, the disciples asked that question, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And Jesus says, no, not yet. Not going to be yet, but it's going to happen. So that's the third reason. Those three reasons then that the second climbing has to take place. I just want to talk a little bit about God's promises. I said already the Davidic covenant, we really read of that in 2 Samuel 7. It's again emphasized in Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, we find a promise there. This eternal throne, a number of scriptures make reference to this. But it's also to be a political kingdom because some would argue this is just something that's uh, mystical. It's not really going to be a kingdom on earth. No, no, no. There's a number of scriptures that make that clear. It's confirmed by an oath. Um, God was very serious about this. And uh, as I said earlier, some people try and apply these promises to the church. They can't be applied to the church for a number of reasons. 
We may look at it and go through in detail maybe some other time. But we read in the first church council in Acts chapter 15 that this is what they were discussing. You know, the throne, the kingdom of Israel. And they acknowledge that it is going to happen. And there we find that Peter stands up and James actually is quoting from the book of Amos. And he speaks about after the Gentiles have been gathered in, then the kingdom will be established and Israel will be brought back together again. And many, many other scriptures, uh, particularly Ezekiel, gives us a lot of detail about these things. Okay, so let's get into to chapter 19. But before we look at the, the verses where we left off last time, uh, I want to take us right back to the beginning of the book itself. Now, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, John is writing this after the revelation. After everything he's seen and recorded, he now gets back and he's got all this information, he's written it down, and he's going to send this as a letter to the seven churches that we read about in chapters 2 and 3. But there, he then gives us an introduction. And this is what John says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. This is John's introduction. This is John trying to express the magnitude of the things he's seen. I want to just read a couple of things from Spurgeon this morning. Spurgeon said this, he says, I gather from this expression that it will be a literal appearing and an actual sight. If the second advent was to be a spiritual manifestation, to be perceived by the minds of men, the phraseology would be, Every mind shall perceive him. But it is not so. We read, every eye shall see him. Now, the mind can behold the spiritual, but the eye can only see that which is distinctly material and visible. That's what Spurgeon says. Now, we read a number of scriptures that speak of the literal, physical return of Jesus as a coming king. Now, I, many years ago, was at a spring harvest event. And there was a prominent evangelical leader there. Um, and he gave a session. Uh, in fact, it was quite interesting. He did two sessions back to back. The first session he did was on um, effectively looking at morality today and things. And he, he referred and used the Ten Commandments as his basis. And it was a reasonably good session. The second session was a discussion about origins, which he kind of co-hosted with some other speaker. And in the one about origins... He then started to say, well, of course, you know, Genesis is just mythology, you know, it's not really literal, and we're not intended to believe that God created everything. And I just sat there quite um, agitated. Um, at the end of the session, I went up to him. I said, um, I, I enjoyed your first session very much. I said, talking about the Ten Commandments, I said, obviously, you, you know, you, you hold them in high regard. He said, oh, absolutely. I said, okay. Because I said, part of those Ten Commandments, I said, Exodus 20, verse 11, it actually says there, doesn't it, that God created everything in six days? I said, so why in the second session did you say he didn't? And he kind of mumbled a bit and uh, tried to walk away, but I followed him, and I actually followed him quite a long way, we were kind of chatting. And, and he turned around to me after this conversation and just said, I suppose you think that Jesus is coming back on a white horse? And I went, uh, yeah. And that's really where the conversation ended, because I thought at that point, really, there's not a lot of point having a, a deep conversation with this individual. Sadly, that's true of so many within the church, that they think a lot of these things are just stories designed to illustrate some spiritual truth. You know, everything that we read in Scripture, every prophecy in Scripture has been literally fulfilled. It was prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. He was. It was prophesied that Israel would go away for 70 years captivity in Babylon. They did. 
You know, every prophecy you can look at has been fulfilled literally. The prophesied that Israel will be scattered amongst the nations, that their life will hang in doubt. Exactly to the detail. You read Deuteronomy 28, it's incredible. It almost reads like a newspaper cutting you could pick up today. Now, sadly, a lot of people have tried to allegorize the things in Scripture because they have trouble taking them, literally, seriously. And yet, why should we doubt these things? So we're going to be looking at some of these things in a moment. Jesus, under oath, made a declaration to the high priest that he will be coming back. You know, that wasn't just a, a spiritual comment that you know could be understood, that it has some reference to some mystical experience that people have, and Jesus can come back in the hearts of his people. No, Jesus was speaking about his physical return. The high priest certainly understood it that way. He said, you should see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. I mean, it's quite a clear statement that Jesus made. So I'll read to you something that Spurgeon wrote. I think this is just wonderful. Because just referring to this, this opening verse of, or opening section of the book of Revelation, verse 7. Again, where John says, behold, he comes and carries on. Let me just read to you this. I think this is wonderful from Spurgeon. He says, This announcement is thought worthy of a note of admiration. Behold, indicated that there is something that we are to hold and behold. And we now hear the voice crying, Come and see. The Holy Spirit never uses superfluous words or redundant notes of exclamation when he cries, Behold. It is because there is a reason for deep and lasting attention. Will you turn away as he bids you pause and ponder, linger and look? You who have been beholding vanity, come and behold the fact that Jesus comes. You who have been beholding this and beholding that, and thinking of nothing worthy of your thoughts, forget these passing sights and spectacles, and for once behold a scene that has no parallel. It is not a monarch in her festivity, but the king of kings in his glory. That same Jesus who went up from Olivet into heaven is coming again to earth in like manner as his disciples saw him go up into heaven. Come and behold this great sight. If ever there was a thing in the world worth looking at, it is this. Behold and see if there was ever glory like unto his glory. He says, this voice is to you. Do not carelessly turn aside for the Lord demands your attention. He commands you to behold Will you be blind when God bids you behold? Will you shut your eyes when your Savior cries behold? When the finger of inspiration points the way, will your eye fail to follow where it directs you? Interesting that, obviously Spurgeon writing this in the the reign of uh, Queen Victoria, and just speaks there, he says, it's not a monarch in her festivity. He goes on, he says, but the King of Kings in his glory. You know, we're celebrating, of course, the Queen's 90th birthday. You know, and we've seen a lot of the pageantry and these wonderful things. And, of course, this country is very good at doing those things. Um, and what a spectacle it is when you see those things on telly, when you see all those those horses and the chariots and everything else. It really is quite something to behold. But we're talking here about the return of Jesus Christ. I mean, you think how glorious and wonderful the Queen has looked in all of these things and the scenes we've seen on telly. How many people were lining the mall the other week? You know, most of them probably didn't even get to see the Queen with their own eyes. They got to see things on TV screens, maybe down the end of the mall or whatever. But, you know, we're going to get to see, and people of the earth are going to get to see this with their own eyes. Spurgeon just carries on, just one more comment. He says, this coming is to be zealously proclaimed. For John does not merely calmly say, he cometh. 
but he vigorously cries, Behold, he cometh. Just as the herald of a king prefaces his message by a trumpet blast that calls attention, so John cries, Behold, it is no ordinary message, for he brings, and he would not have us treat his word as a commonplace saying. He throws his heart into the announcement. He proclaims it loudly. He proclaims it solemnly. And he proclaims it with authority. Behold, he cometh. No truth should be more frequently proclaimed next to the first coming of the Lord than his second coming. And you cannot thoroughly set forth all the implications of the first advent if you forget the second. At the Lord's Supper, there is no discerning the Lord's body unless you discern his first coming. But there is no drinking into his cup and to its fullness, unless you hear him say, until I come. Really good comments by Spurgeon. You know, it's true, uh, when we celebrate communion, the first cup very much indicative of his first coming, to have his body broken for us, to pay for our sin. But at the second coming, and that's why Jesus said, that when we drink that cup, we do it in remembrance, until, there's another one of those untils, until he comes. We're just going to have kind of a running start into where we left off last time. So we just pick up from verse 11 of chapter 19. And we read, and I saw heaven opened. I mean, that must be quite a spectacle in itself. And behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he does judge and make war. Now it's interesting because we've got a definite contrast here between chapter 6, where we saw another white horse and another rider sat upon that white horse. There, the, the rider has this bow. Seemingly, you know, there's some people that, that are not sure about this. Like, to me, it seems very much not just a, a bow as in a bow and arrow. People, people talk about um, you know, maybe coming to make war on that occasion. Well, on that occasion, he's coming to make peace, Antichrist, back in chapter 6. And I think the bow that we see is very much like the bow that God places in the sky after the flood. It's a sign of a covenant. And that's what Antichrist will do. He'll come and bring a covenant, establish a covenant with Israel for seven years. Of course, he'll break it halfway through it. But that imposter, in a sense, the one riding the white horse there, is not coming to bring real peace. And he will bring war and all those other things that are associated that we read in chapter 6. Whereas here, this rider of the white horse, he's called Faithful and True. I mean, they're not just titles that are applied to Jesus. They are his characteristics. And Jesus is always faithful. The word of God says that Jesus cannot deny himself. God cannot deny himself. He is faithful. Even if we're unfaithful, God will always be faithful. Jesus will always be faithful. You know, given the greatest temptations that you could possibly endure as a human being, both in the wilderness when tempted of the devil... And probably much greater than that one is in Gethsemane, when Jesus knew that he was facing the wrath of God. When he was about to, the Bible speaks, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. You know, Jesus who'd never sinned, absolutely, perfectly pure in, in every possible way, had never thought an unclean or unholy thought, was about to have poured on him the sins of the world. And to experience God's wrath. And the the temptation at that point for Jesus just to say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to walk away. And yet Jesus was faithful. In the most trying circumstances of all. Even to the point that Jesus, we read, sheds these drops of blood. 
It's a medical condition, hematridosis, where under extreme duress, people can actually sweat blood. The capillaries burst and blood comes out instead of the, the, the sweat glands. And extreme stress. And that's what Jesus was under. I mean, probably you and I have never ever been quite that stressed. Under that much pressure. We can't begin to imagine what Jesus was facing. And yet there, he was faithful. Because he'd made a promise. It was God's intention that Jesus would come, that Jesus willingly gave up the glory, the majesty of heaven, and he would come for you and for me. By the love that he has for you. you know, just looking at that word again, he's called faithful. It's because of that that your eternity is secure. It's because he's faithful that no matter what you do or say or think, whatever's happened in the past, again, a couple of mentions this morning already of people that have perceived that they were too far gone in sin. Well, there is no such thing because Jesus died to pay for the sins of the whole world, we read in First John. He's the propitiation or payment in full. In full. You know, I think we mentioned this before, but with the Roman system, the prison system, if you were in prison, typically a statement we put on the prison door of why you were in there and the length of the imprisonment that you had to serve for the crime you'd committed. And when you'd completed your time, when you'd served your sentence, it would be stamped to telestai. That's the Greek word that was used. It means paid in full. That's the word that Jesus cries out on the cross, to telestai. Paid in full. And then you'd be given a copy of this document so that if anybody says, but weren't you imprisoned? And you could hold it up and say, I've paid my crime in full. I'm now free. Well, you and I benefit from that. You know, we have been effectively given our certificate back and it's got paid in full. Every lustful thought, every angry thought, every deed that we've committed, everything that's been hurtful to other people, even those little things that we think that nobody notices and they don't really matter. Well, before a holy God, everything matters. The incredible thing is, just as we read at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, just turn with me if you will, it's the beginning of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, such a wonderful scripture, it's worth just reading yourself, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, and it says there, come now, it's God speaking, come now, let us reason together. You know, one of the things I love about God is this, this reasoning. You know, the world thinks everything of, of logic and all this, you know, but the Bible is full of reason. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You know, that process was something that was used for garments. You would dip it into this dye and it would become a scarlet. It would impregnate the material, the fabric so much that it would be impossible to remove it. But then to make it crimson, you would dip it again. to doubly dyed, as it were. This garment then becomes so impregnated, it becomes this colour. And of course, it was something that was very valuable. And the Romans, of course, we know, used... Uh, these kind of crimson garments, a sign of their position and rank and so on. But God says that he's going to wash it clean. It will be just come like a brand new garment again. 
And he says, that's what your sins were like. Again, all of that is wrapped up in that one word, faithful. He's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he does judge and make war because Jesus is just coming back with a debt to settle. This is something that is absolutely righteous. I've heard it said a number of times, and I, I agree with it, that I don't think anybody will be in hell with a sense of injustice. I don't think anybody will be in hell thinking, well, this isn't fair. Because I think everybody will realize at that point that it's all the result of the decisions and the choices that we make ourselves. In Isaiah 61, we read a portion that Jesus actually quotes when he's at the synagogue in Nazareth. We read about that in Luke chapter 4. Verses 10 through 21. And Jesus, as typically would happen, was there on the Sabbath and they read it, they do a kind of a, a Bible reading, a Torah reading, typically. Um, and Jesus is given the copy of the scroll of Isaiah. That happens to be the, the reading for that morning. And Jesus picks it up and reads from the book of Isaiah. And this is what he reads. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Jesus just shuts the scroll and goes to sit down. And everybody looks because they know that there's another line that he's not finished. Because Jesus should have read on and say, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus was making a very clear point. Jesus was effectively saying to the people that were listening, this scripture is being fulfilled right now in your midst. That the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the meek. And that's what Jesus did. To bind up the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives. The open of prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Full stop. In fact, what we have there is a comma. It's the longest comma in history. It's lasted 2,000 years or so. Because the next part of it is not yet fulfilled. And Jesus knew that because Jesus hadn't come at that point to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God, but he will. And as we've just read, Jesus is coming to make righteous war on his enemies. The day of vengeance of our God. That is yet to happen. Jesus omitted that when he read this, but it's about to be fulfilled. He's now completing that mandate. Now, just jumping back to Revelation 14, we read there, of the, the winepress of the wrath of God. Another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So this idea of somebody reaping and chopping down the, the, the vines now, and getting the grapes to put them in the winepress. And we looked at this also from Isaiah uh, 63 last time, just speaking there of the... Um, garments of Jesus at the second coming, being splattered with the, the, the blood of his enemies effectively, but in the, the idiom that's used there is the winepress. Jesus says, I've trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. That verse carries on, and the angel thrust in his sickle to the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came up out of the winepress even 
unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Now we read this at the time, we didn't look at this in detail because I wanted to cover it when we get to this point as we are this morning. And this is just an interesting comment because we're just told this, this distance of this, this bloodshed. 1,600 furlongs. Now furlong, roughly about 600 or so uh, feet. So we're looking at about 180 miles total duration. Now it's just interesting because we know that Megiddo, where we get the phrase Armageddon from, is up in the Jezreel Valley up here in northern Israel. Or certainly in the middle of Israel as you go up. You've got the Sea of Galilee up here at the top. And this is the Dead Sea you're familiar with down here, Jerusalem over the side. Well this is the area over here of Edom. Now we're told and we've looked already that Jerusalem, or sorry, Israel will flee to Edom. Now the distance between Megiddo and Petra is 1600 furlongs. Isn't that interesting? Because this distance where this bloodshed will occur, we're told, will be over this, this distance. And yet when Jesus comes back, he will return, but a lot of people think he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. That's not what the Bible teaches. He will set his feet on the Mount of Olives, but first he will come back to deliver Israel who are about to be destroyed by the combined armies of Antichrist here in Edom. And then Jesus will then travel back from here to Jerusalem. And that's when he'll then set his feet upon the Mount of Olives. We'll look at that in more detail in a short while. But it's just interesting that this whole army that will have gathered together, this huge great expanse of land that's here, where it's already been commented, it'll be a great staging post for an invasion, well they will then march, and the combined armies of Antichrist will march from, from this area, probably one way around the Dead Sea or the other, whichever is the easiest to cross, and they'll come down here. And this is where they'll be about to destroy Israel, and this is where Israel will be crying out, and Jesus will come back and deliver them. We read, verse 12, His eyes were as a flame of fire. We said last week, that kind of penetrating gaze. It sees beyond the surface. You know, we all do this, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. And the truth is often very different. We don't like to reveal our emotions and the things we're thinking, but the Lord sees right through that. And on his head were many crowns. They're the crowns that we laid before his feet back in Revelation 5 or 4 and 5. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. We looked at some of those details last week, so we'll just move on for now. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Now last week we said that's not the blood of his enemies, that's his own blood. Just as it was with Joseph. That scapegoat was killed and that garment was dipped in blood. Jesus effectively becoming the scapegoat, dying in our place. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Now there's a number of groups that are involved here in these armies of heaven. It's a combined total. Uh, Jude 14, Zechariah 14 and so on. Give us details. Clearly the angels are with him. We read that. Uh, in fact, the verse from uh, Isaiah 63 uh, tells us that. But also Matthew 13, Matthew 25, 2 Thessalonians, etc. The angels will be with him uh, as he returns at the second coming. But so are we. So is the church. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 and a number of other scriptures you can see there in the notes. And also in the book of Jude, we're told um, that he will come with ten thousands of his saints. So we will come back with Jesus. Again, we said last time that we don't fight. We're just coming back to observe and then Jesus will establish his kingdom and then we will be given various roles and responsibilities within that. But again, I just want to make it clear that this is not the rapture, but this is the revelation of Jesus as Jesus is revealed to the world. This is not going to take place in the air, but on the earth. The rapture occurs in the air. We're caught up to meet him when we go back to heaven. This is Jesus coming down from heaven, down to the earth. You see, at this point, he's not coming for the saints, 
He's coming with the saints. He's coming to deliver Israel and to set up his kingdom. Not to comfort as with the rapture, but to conquer. The rapture, Paul says, we should comfort each other with those words. Well, this is Jesus returning to conquer. And not to protect us in heaven, not to provide a place of security and safety away from his wrath, as numerous Old Testament passages talk of, but to rule with us on earth. And so verse 15, we, we carry on, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. Again, that idea of a winepress is used there. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. You know, a, a lot of commentators see this very clearly, that, that every argument of man will be disarmed at this point. Nobody's going to be able to argue with Jesus. And, you know, all the things that have been said by the brains, the clever people, academia, by the colleges and universities that reject God, reject the Bible, all of those things are going to be addressed in an instant. Just turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 2. We're going to look at a prophetic psalm that really addresses this. It speaks of this incredible attitude that exists amongst the nations. Psalm 2 says, Why do the heathen range and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And this is exactly what's going to happen. The kings of the earth are going to gather together against Jesus. And against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. God's going to look on and he's just laughing at these people that are trying to stand against the Creator. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I just pause for a moment. I've not read the book yet, but we've got a book at the back there by Bob Cornuke about the temple. And we all think, don't we, that the temple lives on the temple mount. That's what we think it is. That's what we think it was. Well, Bob Cornuke in his study has challenged that arguing and reasoning. And there's another reason, or other reasons why the Temple Mount became called the Temple Mount. The Temple to Jupiter was built there by the Romans for a start. And it's, of course, the place where the Dome of the Rock is. But in short, and I don't want to destroy the book. I've not read it myself, but I want to read it. Bob Cornuke argues that Mount Zion is where the Temple existed. And it's interesting because that's what we see here. Yet I've set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Zion being one of the hills around Jerusalem. So it's just interesting if you want to avail yourself of that. Just a curious uh, study that I'm looking forward to having a look at myself. But carrying on, verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest you be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So the psalm speaking of very much this moment that we're looking at, as Jesus returns to bring judgment upon his enemies. Verse 16, And he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I mean, this is the king that rules over and has authority over every king that has ever 
ruled. Lord of Lords. Over every politician, over every president, over every prime minister, over every head of state, Jesus has the preeminence. You notice there that the text is in capitals for these words, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's actually 95 Greek manuscripts from which the book of Revelation has been compiled. Some of those are complete, some of those are in parts. And obviously we've checked one against another. You know, I say we, I haven't, but you know, historic, historically people have. Uh, and, and made sure that the info or the, the text, the words we have are authentic to what was originally given to John. Interestingly enough, in every single one of those manuscripts, these words are in capitals. Every single one. It's just, you know, as if to underline the point that Jesus really is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's no contention, there's no debate on that subject. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice. I just want to pause there. Because uh, John Valvoud uh, makes this comment. Sorry, let me just go back. He says, this shows how bright this angel shines with the glory of God. This angel could be seen even though it stands before the sun. The angel is standing in the light of the sun with the angel himself possibly shining with even greater, even greater brilliance. I mean, you look at the sun, you can't really see anything. It just obliterates your, your, your eyesight, doesn't it? Well, this angel is seen standing in the sun. So the, the brilliance of this created being uh, is something to behold. With a loud voice saying to the fowls that fly in the midst of the heaven. Talking about birds, obviously. Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Now, We've got two suppers that are mentioned in this chapter. We've got the the wedding feast, effectively, the marriage of the Lamb, the wedding supper. And then we've got the supper that's going to take place on earth, where these birds of the earth are called together to eat up their prey. Things that have, those that have fallen on the battlefield, those that have been slain as the Lord has returned and he's defeated the armies of Antichrist that have been marching against him and marching against Jerusalem and against Israel, against the remnant of the Jews in Edom. It says that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. You see, at this point, it doesn't matter what your rank is. Everybody's included in that list. All those that have defied God, all those that have stood against Jesus, against the Jews at this point, they're all going to end up in the same position. You see... When you die, it doesn't matter what rank you have. It doesn't matter what salary you are on. Suddenly what matters is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's the same for all of us. You know, those other things are just incidental things. What matters is our relationship with Jesus. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he says this, for wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Now, some people use that and they think that's a verse that's referring to the rapture of the church. And they, 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 the idea is that the, the church are these eagles being gathered together to the, to the body of Christ. Uh, it doesn't fit for a number of reasons. But consistently with what we find in various other passages, Jesus is talking about his return and when he returns, Wherever those carcasses are, whether those people that have fallen, these mighty men, these kings, the free, the bond, small and great, that's where the birds of the air, the eagles and any other birds that are coming to eat the flesh of them will be gathered together. There's a number of scriptures that um, confirm this and make it very, very clear. We're just going to look at Ezekiel chapter 39. 
Begin at verse 17, it says, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come. Gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk. And my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, you shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, with all the men of war, says the Lord. You see, this isn't just a theme that we find in the book of Revelation. These things are throughout scripture. And it's speaking of this incredible event that I can't do justice to in my explanations this morning. The return of Jesus Christ and all that it's going to mean for this world. Verse 19 then says, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. I mean, just ostrous. Newell in his commentary says, This is an incurable insanity of sin, or the incurable insanity of sin, which wars away in spite of defeat after defeat against a holy God. I mean, we've got people, human beings, trying to defeat God. Notice, the, 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 the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies, gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse. That's against Jesus. And this goes back to what I was saying about all these, these films that we see, that all speak of how man is going to overcome. We're going to win the day somehow. You know, a lot of those films is dealing with aliens or whatever else, or some threat on the earth. And man is gradually being conditioned to think that there isn't anything that we can't solve. Well, this is going to be a rude awakening. We've already seen that countless multitudes will will die in this battle as they go against God. But you see, again, just understand, notice what we read right at the beginning, that God is righteous in this judgment and this war. You see, God doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked. In fact, Ezekiel tells us that God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. God doesn't want people to die. God doesn't want people to, to be put to death because of their sin. But, of course, he's a just and holy God. And these are people that have made the choice to war against him. I mean, look, think of it this way. If somebody were to break into your house and start attacking your children, what would you do? It actually changes it when you start to, to think of it in those kind of terms, doesn't it? Well, God, through the ages, has seen people bring lies and deceit and all sorts of things that have kept his children away from him. People for whom Jesus bled and died. And of course, Israel will be here about to be destroyed and God is not going to allow that to happen. Barnhouse, in his commentary, says, The battle of Armageddon is the laughter of God against the climax of man's arrogance. And that kind of sums it up. Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 9, another reference for these things. There's so many scriptures that, that uh, are being brought together here. You know, but this is incredible. They're making war against God. Uh, as we read in Psalm 2, you know, God is going to laugh at man's arrogance at this point. Just read a couple of verses from that portion from Zechariah. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. A lot of people think that's a reference to Jericho. 
um, for a number of reasons in that battle that took place there. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Now just note, because some people think that this means Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives. It doesn't say he's returning to the Mount of Olives, but his feet shall stand there. So Jesus, after this battle in Edom, he's going to come back, he's going to deliver Jerusalem, his feet will then stand on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. It's going to be an incredible situation. We're talking about a great earthquake that's going to occur at this point. There is a fault line that runs across here, and this seemingly is where this is going to occur. Uh, this is looking at the, the city of Jerusalem and so on. Uh, this is just very, very interesting. Let me just carry on. Afterwards he brought me, I'm going to read from Ezekiel 47 now, verse 1. Afterward he brought me again to the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. Now this is a vision that Ezekiel is getting of the latter days, of the times that we're looking at here, of a temple in Jerusalem, and this event that he's seeing, where this water is coming out from under the threshold. Now, by the way, we read about this in John's Gospel. Jesus, on the last, the great day of the feast, the very last day in the, the Jewish calendar, they have feasts, seven feasts through the year. The last of those feasts, on the eighth day, at the end of the celebrations, the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam, they'd pick up water, they'd bring it back up to the top, to the altar, and they'd pour it out from under the altar, and the, altar, the water would just run down through the streets. And it was symbolic of when they were in the wilderness and Moses struck the rock and the water came out of the rock and they used to do that year after year as a memorial of the way that God had provided for them the interesting thing is that on the occasion when they're doing this they used to do it in silence and suddenly Jesus stands up in the midst and bellows literally bellows if anyone thirst let him come to me and suddenly everybody's looking at Jesus. You're supposed to be quiet at this point. And suddenly Jesus is saying, if you thirst, come to me. And Jesus makes the point that he is the water. Well, this is a very similar thing that's going on. The same type of idea that we now see the Lord fulfilling, water coming out from the temple and from the altar. Picking up from halfway. For the forefront of the house stood towards the east. And the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. And then said he to me, these waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and notice and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that every living thing that lives, which moves, whithersoever the river shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish because these waters shall come hither and they shall be healed. And everything that lives Whether the river, um, sorry, whether the river cometh, and goes on from that point. Now, we're talking way back when we're going through about rivers, if you remember, and the fact that a lot of the rivers are going to get turned to blood and so on. And we highlighted at the time that almost all the major cities of the world have a river. Of course, London, Rome, and you know, Paris, and so many others we looked at, all have rivers, and it's vital for their economy, for their trade, and everything else. In fact, there's very few major cities in the world that don't have a river. But there's one that at the moment doesn't have a river. Jerusalem. But this is telling us that there's going to be effectively a river that is going to flow from the heart of Jerusalem. And I believe it will occur at the time of this earthquake. 
and this earthquake is going to cause a, changes, whatever, and suddenly we're going to have this water gushing out of Jerusalem. It's going to flow down into the Dead Sea, where at the moment nothing lives. You know, the Dead Sea, many of you ladies may have had cosmetic products. When I went to Israel some years ago, I brought some back for Joy. I'm not saying she needed the, you know, to, anyway, let's move on. But it's really good stuff for the skin, because all the mineral content and everything else. And suddenly that river, or that sea is going to be healed because of this influx of fresh water coming into it. And we're told that the, the sea, that at the moment there's no life there whatsoever, is going to be healed and it's going to bring forth life. Just an interesting side thing that's going to be going on at this time. As this earthquake occurs, as Jesus comes back, sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, this earthquake, and suddenly this river, this water starts gushing, and suddenly Jerusalem will have a river. Interestingly, of course, the New Jerusalem will also have a river. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks' time when we get there. So we just conclude. Verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, and with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. I just want to make the point here that hell, as Jesus said, was not made for man, but for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. And that's why the Bible says that Jesus is the, as we said earlier, the propitiation, the payment in full, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. People will not go to hell on account of their sin. They will go to hell on account of rejecting the only solution to that problem. And that is Jesus. The price has been paid. But unless you accept it, it means nothing to you. So, Antichrist and the false prophet... We saw them, we looked at them in chapter 13. Those that have deceived the world now into all these kings that have been brought together to war against Jesus, defeated, and now these two ringleaders as such are cast alive into this lake of burning fire and brimstone. We're going to find that they're still there a thousand years later. We'll see a reference to that uh, next time. Verse 21, including this chapter. And the remnant was slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Just in closing, I just want to talk to you about this coming king. Have we begun to understand just who he is? Matthew presents Jesus as the king of kings, as the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, but he's also the king of the ages, the king of heaven, the king of glory, the king of kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He was a prophet before Moses, a priest after Melchizedek, a champion like Joshua, an offering in the place of Isaac, a king from the line of David, a wise counselor above Solomon, a beloved, rejected, but then exalted son like Joseph, and yet far more. The heavens declare his glory, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Who is he? Well, he is who is, who was, and who will always be. The first and the last. He's the Alpha and Omega, the Aleph and the Tau, the A and the Z. He is the first fruits of all them that slept. He is the I am that I am, the voice of the burning bush. He's the captain of the Lord's hosts. He was the conqueror of Jericho. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. 
He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The very God of very God. He's our kinsman redeemer. He's our avenger of blood. He is our city of refuge. Our performing high priest. Our personal prophet. Our reigning king. He's the loftiest idea in literature. His highest personality in philosophy is a fundamental doctrine of theology. <laughs> He's the biggest problem for the atheists. He's the miracle of the ages. He's the superlative of everything good. We are the beneficiaries of a love letter. It was written in blood on a wooden cross erected in Judea some 2,000 years ago. He was crucified on a cross of wood and yet he made the hill on which it stood. In fact, by him were all things made that were made. Without him was not anything made that was made. By him are all things held together. So a question, what held him to that cross? It wasn't the nails. At any time he could have said enough already and called upon legions of angels to come to his aid. What held him to the cross was his love for you and me. He was born of a woman so that we could be born of God. He humbled himself so that we could be lifted up. He became a servant so that we could be made co-heirs. He suffered rejection so that we could become his friends. He denied himself so that we could freely receive all things. He gave himself so that he could bless us in every way. He's available to the tempted and the tried. He blesses the young. He cleanses the lepers. He defends the feeble. He delivers the captives. He discharges the debtors. And he forgives the sinners. He franchises the meek. He guards the besieged. He heals the sick. He provides strength to the weak. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. He serves the unfortunate. And he sympathizes and he saves. His offices are manifold. His reign is righteous. His promises are sure. His goodness is limitless. His light is matchless. His grace is sufficient. His love never changes. His mercy is everlasting. His word is enough. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's irresistible. And he's invincible. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Man cannot explain him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they learned they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault with him. The witnesses couldn't agree against him. Herod couldn't kill him. And death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. He's always been and always will be. He had no predecessor and will have no successor. You can't vote him out and he isn't going to resign. His name is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. His is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our hearts. Lord, as we just step back in awe at the King who is coming to establish his throne and kingdom, 
to take vengeance upon his enemies, to fulfill his promises. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed these things to us, not just for knowledge, but Lord, that our lives may be transformed by his amazing grace. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you that Jesus was no mere man. Jesus is God, manifest in the flesh. And we have the privilege of knowing him and calling him our friend. The one who we've just spoken of, beyond anything that we can think, has condescended to come and allow us to have a relationship with him. And so, Lord, we pray that you help us again by your grace because we have nothing in ourselves that is worthy or good enough to even enter into your presence. But by your grace, help us to know Jesus more. And Lord, to be as a bride getting ready for her wedding day. Lord, to cast off the things of this world. That when we meet our heavenly bridegroom, oh Lord, we will be in awe and as we've already seen, we will fall before his feet. Lord, we want to look upon Jesus. And Lord, the joy that will fill our hearts. So Father, help us to be forever mindful that this world, this life is not about acquiring whatever we can. It's about getting ready for the greatest event in the history of the world when Jesus will return. When every score will be settled. When everything will be dealt with. And Jesus will be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, ruling the whole earth. Oh Lord, what a privilege to be yours, to be part of that bride, part of the bride that is united and joined to Christ. We thank you now for these things. Lord, impress them upon our hearts. Lord, don't let us go from here unaffected by these things. Stir us, we pray, that we may live our lives as living testimonies, as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We ask in his precious name. Amen.